Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the advent of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dole Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is the Reverend Dr. Richard Stuckwish. He is the pastor of Emmaus Lutheran Church in South Bend, Indiana. Pastor Stuckwish, welcome to Concord Matters. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Smith. Happy to be with you today. Yes, it's absolutely a great pleasure to have you on Concord Matters and to talk about the advent of Christ. Now, it's become almost a little cliche in the last several years, maybe even a decade or more, that among confessional, liturgical, Orthodox Lutherans to sort of heavily re-emphasize the season of Advent. And I say that not in a derogatory way, but rather that, well, this is kind of what we always do, right? Something that has a tradition among us gets less attention or is lost entirely, which I think we can just honestly say has happened with the season of Advent, especially among Christians in America. And so those who wish to recover such things often overemphasize them, and we tend to do that through social media posts, our blogs, our podcasts, and the like. Now, again, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing to recover good things in the church's life, doctrine, and practice that don't get the attention that they deserve or have been lost. I do personally think that we should be careful that it doesn't become a kind of virtue signaling where we parade around how traditional, confessional, liturgical, and orthodox we are as we do it. But I do think it is important that things like the season of Advent is taught among us and gets attention from the church. I think the Advent of Christ is worthy of our Christian reflection. And so that is what I'd like to do here today, especially that as we are currently in the season of Advent, that we talk about what is our confessional view of Advent? How should Christians think about the Advent of Christ? And what does that look like as it is lived out in our Christian lives of faith? And so, Pastor Stuckwish, I guess that's a good place to start, as you are a faithful pastor, shepherding those Christians entrusted into your care in the parish. How do we help guide believers in Christ through Advent? Yeah, thank you, Pastor Smith. I appreciate your opening remarks, and I, I resonate with them quite a bit. The, the season of Advent really has a lot to offer us, and I agree, the virtue signaling, the overdoing it, I don't think that's particularly helpful, and it's not really in harmony with the season of Advent either, which is a call to repentance, to a kind of humility before the Lord, but also a trust and confidence in Him. And we want to embrace that season and learn from it, benefit from it as best we can. One of the ironies, of course, is that while the world tends to turn Advent into just a proleptic celebration of their Christmas, Christians can do a similar kind of thing in bypassing the benefits and importance of Advent, which is the Lord's call to repentance. When we talk about preparing for Christmas, we dare not think of that as us doing something to get ready for the Lord, but the Lord getting us ready. That's very prominent in the fact that He begins the gospel by sending John the Baptist to preach repentance and administer baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So it's really the Lord who's getting us ready for the coming of Christ. Advent, of course, means the coming. 
But what we're concerned with here is not just the coming of Christ at Christmas once upon a time, but rather the coming of Christ historically, incarnationally, when he was conceived and born of St. Mary, and then his coming again for the final judgment of the living and the dead, such as we confess in the Creed, the end of the Church year and the beginning of the Church year have a lot of continuity with them, especially because in the history of the Church year, the season of Advent, such as we know it, really varied somewhat in length, and it was often six or seven weeks long, beginning in early November, and it wasn't aimed at the celebration of Christmas, per se, so much as it was a reflection upon the fact that Christ is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the Northern Hemisphere, it was getting darker, the days were getting shorter, the world was in its dying stages, the crops were all gathered, and, you know, in the days before electricity, people really, they couldn't keep working through the night. So there was a sense in which everything was slowing down, getting darker, dying, and Christians are called to repentance as they recognize the heavens and the earth are passing away, and yet we fix our hope on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Between the coming in the flesh, such as we remember at Christmas time, and the coming for the final judgment, such as we are called to uh, consider, there is the coming to Christ through the ministry of his gospel. And we see that in John the Baptist, we see that in Christ himself, we see that in his holy apostles, but we also see that, receive that in the ministry of the gospel that continues even to the close of the age. And uh, in that respect, the season of Advent really sets the tone for the entire church year in that we're considering the fact that Christ has come, he is coming, and he will come again, and we are prepared for his coming by the work that he does, by the word that he speaks through the servants that he sends to preach in his name. One of the things that I think is especially beneficial for us is to recognize the value of the church year and the seasons of the church year, not as though these things, such as we know them, are divinely mandated or divinely commanded, but they really do flow out of the life of Christ, they flow out of the story of the Gospels, and they really follow the pattern that God did send for his people in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had a church year that was ordained by God. Christ is the fulfillment of that church year. We're not bound by those Old Testament seasons and festivals, but as we trace the life of Christ in the church year that we have received within the history of the church, we're really retracing year after year his fulfillment of those things that God gave to his people in the world, and thereby benefiting from them year after year in the life of the Church. One of the things that I love to focus on, and it really fits very well with our focus on the season of Advent, the second article of the Creed, in which we confess Christ, his person and work, and the history of salvation in his conception and birth of St. Mary, his suffering and death under Pontius Pilate, his resurrection from the dead, and his coming for the final judgment, that really brings us right to the heart of Advent. But interestingly, Dr. Luther, in his large catechism, one of my very favorite confessions, one of my very favorite writings of Dr. Luther, interestingly, his discussion of the second article is one of the shortest sections of the whole large catechism. And I remember when I first noticed that, it kind of surprised me because I thought, wow, you know, the second article, this is really the heart of everything. And you'd really expect Dr. Luther to wax eloquent and at length about it. What he says is beautiful. I mean, just absolutely beautiful. And maybe you can read some of that for us in just a minute, Pastor Smith. But the particular point that I want to call attention to is, as Luther kind of winds up this very short little section, he says, this really isn't the place to go into the details, because that's something that we do throughout the church year, in the Gospels of the church year, and especially on those festivals, when we consider his incarnation, his birth, his life and death, and his resurrection from the dead. And it really struck me that this is what the church year is. This is what the seasons of the church year are for us. They are a school of faith that's constantly leading us into the life of Christ and really bringing the life of Christ to us 
through the reading and preaching of the Holy Gospels. And I like to compare it to the way you know a jeweler will examine a diamond and hold it up to the light and turn it and, and look at it from different angles and allow the light to refract through that diamond. That's what we're doing with the church here. We're holding up Christ and allowing the light of the gospel to shine upon us, and we're looking at his life from all these different angles, and the light is just beautifully refracted and reflected upon us, and the season of Advent is part of that. It's a very important part of that, and it really sets the tone and, and the rhythm and the emphasis for the entire church year that we're embarking upon now. I don't think that's anywhere more clear than in the first Sunday of Advent, in which historically, and still in the three-year lectionary in the first gospel listed, You have the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the cusp of his passion, and people sometimes feel like, why are we suddenly in Palm Sunday at the beginning of Advent? It's because the season of Advent is setting the tone for the whole year, and so we consider the way in which Christ comes in humility and meekness with righteousness and salvation to sacrifice himself upon the cross for the atonement of the sins of the world and to reconcile us to God. And we also consider where everything is headed from the very beginning. It's all headed to the cross and passion of our Lord and his resurrection from the dead. So in any case, I guess the first point is to say that the church here in general is a school of faith that leads us into the life of Christ. Advent is a very important part of that, and not just another piece of the puzzle, but really sets the tone for the entire year ahead of us. And with that, Pastor Smith, maybe you'd like to read some of that short section of Dr. Luther's discussion of the second article from the March Catechism, especially those final three paragraphs, which summarize in general what Advent is about, but then also make this point concerning the church year and the benefits of it. Absolutely. And well stated, well laid out there for us. We're going to continue to develop a lot of those thoughts that you've given us a preview of here as we go on through the rest of the show today. But I do agree with you. The Large Catechism, excellent, excellent resource and writing by Martin Luther. And I too really appreciate this. And so we're going to go ahead and read a section there as you asked from the Large Catechism, which of course is part of our Book of Concord. And on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is part two of the Large Catechism, the second article, and we're going to take paragraphs 31 through 33 here. This is what Dr. Luther writes. Let this then be the sum of this article. The little word Lord means simply the same as Redeemer. It means the one who has brought us from Satan to God, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, and who preserves us in the same. But all the points that follow in this article serve no other purpose than to explain and express this redemption. They explain how and by whom it was accomplished. They explain how much it cost him and what he spent and risked so that he might win us and bring us under his dominion. It explains that he became man, citing John chapter 1 verse 14, was conceived and born without sin, citing Hebrews 4 verse 15. From the Holy Spirit and from the Virgin Mary, citing Luke chapter 1, verse 35, so that he might overcome sin. Further, it explains that he suffered, died, and was buried so that he might make satisfaction for me and pay what I owe, citing 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. Not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood, citing 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19. And he did all this in order to become my Lord. He did none of these things for himself, nor did he have any need for redemption. After that, he rose again from the dead, swallowed up and devoured death, citing 1 Corinthians 15.54, and finally ascended into heaven and assumed the government at the Father's right hand, citing 1 Peter 3, verses 22. He did these things so that the devil and all powers must be subject to him and lie at his feet, citing Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13. 
until finally, at the last day, he will completely divide and separate us from the wicked world, the devil, death, sin, and such, citing Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and 47 through 50. To explain all these individual points does not belong to brief sermons for children. That belongs to fuller sermons that extend throughout the entire year, especially at those times that are appointed for the purpose of treating each article at length, for Christ's birth, sufferings, resurrection, ascension, and so on. Yes, the entire gospel that we preach is based on this point, that we properly understand this article as that upon which our salvation and all our happiness rests. It is so rich and complete that we can never learn it fully. Thus far, the large catechism. Now, Pastor Stuckwish, I completely agree, and we've emphasized several times on this show that these things are of pedagogical value. I love that idea of the church as the school of faith. That's definitely a very faithful Lutheran understanding of how we view the church, what we do in the church, the liturgy and life and church year, the church. So Dr. Luther points to this in the large catechism, as you set up for us. And what is the pedagogical value of Advent then for us? Yeah, the thing to do with any season of the church year, and I mean, it's easy to fall into our cliches, whether they be misguided or accurate, if we emphasize something, we can get away from the specifics of it. And the best way to understand Advent is to look at the actual readings and propers that are assigned, and they differ between the historic one-year lectionary and the three-year lectionary, although not nearly so much as people might suspect. If we look at those readings, we actually do learn from the season what it really is about. And as the Apology, the Oxford Confession expresses, and I think this is something that you have discussed on Concord Matters in the past, the purpose of the traditions of the Church, the ceremonies, the rites and ceremonies of the Church, is really to teach the people, to instruct them in the Scriptures, to instruct them in the faith, to lead them into the life of Christ, as I've discussed. And uh, specifically in Apology 24, the Church year and the traditional readings are mentioned. So if we consider both the history of the church year and of Advent in particular, and as we consider the particular readings that are read and preached and heard during the season of Advent, whether in the historic lectionary or in the three-year lectionary, such as we have in the Lutheran service book, what we find, again, is, as I mentioned, that Advent is not just, oh, it's almost Christmas, let's get ready for Christmas. Certainly, we do remember the coming of our Lord in the flesh. That is an important part of the season, although that really comes into emphasis and prominence mainly in the final week or so before the Nativity of our Lord. Aside from that, the season really is dominated by the person and ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, those of us using the three-year lectionary just heard from St. Mark this past week, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he immediately starts talking about John the Baptist and John's preaching and ministry of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All of the Gospels, in one way or another, really begin the story with John the Baptist. Not because John is the Christ, he tells us himself he's not, but he is the forerunner. He's the voice in the wilderness. He goes before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, and he does it by preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin and by way of baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And with this preaching and this baptism, he points to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So with that, we really have kind of the fundamental function and purpose of Advent. It is the continuation of the ministry of the forerunner. It is a continuation of that preaching and baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, by which alone we are prepared for the coming of Christ, prepared not only to remember that he came in history, conceived and born of St. Mary, 
by prepared to receive him in repentance and faith as he comes to us here and now in the liturgy, in the ministry of the gospel, in the preaching of his word, in the Holy Communion, that we would remember our baptism if we have already been baptized and remember it not just, oh yeah, I was baptized on such and such a day, but that we would remember and exercise the significance of our baptism through daily contrition and repentance, that we would die to our sins and then also rise by faith in the forgiveness of our sins, the newness of life in Christ Jesus. So baptism, along with St. John the Baptist, is a prominent emphasis of the season of Advent. And of course, that's the whole Christian life, but it has its specifics, it has its propria, its propers, so to speak, this keynote that is sent with the season of Advent. And then, as I mentioned, there is an awareness, especially in the early weeks of Advent, there's an awareness of the fact that this whole world, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is passing away. The only thing that's going to survive, the only thing that remains forever is Christ and his word and those who are in Christ by faith in his word so that we are pulled away from our idolatry and our trust and reliance on the things of this world in order to fix our hope, to fix our eyes, our heart, and mind upon Christ and his word, to cling to him in the midst of sin and death, in the midst of uncertainty. I mean, this whole past year, of course, has been reminding us how precarious and uncertain this world is and this life is. That's what the season of Advent does year after year, not to bring us to despair or cynicism or hopelessness, but rather that we would fix our hearts and minds, our hope and our trust, our confidence and joy upon Christ, the Son of God, who comes to us, who has come in the flesh, who tabernacles with us in the flesh, but who continues to come to us through the ministry of the gospel, through the ministry of men who, like St. John, are called, ordained, and sent by God to preach, to forgive sins in the name of Christ, to administer baptism in his name instead, to celebrate the sacrament on the altar in remembrance of him, so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and be righteous by faith in him and look forward to the fact that when we die, our life isn't over and done, but rather even though we die, yet shall we live in Christ Jesus. So this is what the season of heaven is really bringing us to. And there's this threefold coming of Christ, this threefold advent. It shows up in a number of our Lutheran hymns. It's certainly there in our Book of Concord, even though the Book of Concord doesn't say the season of advent is about these three comings of Christ. All three of the comings are there. They're confessed throughout the Book of Concord. They're confessed in the creeds of the Church. They were confessed in that portion that you read from Dr. Luther's large catechism. There's the coming in the flesh, his incarnation. There's the coming for the final judgment of the living and the dead. And betwixt and between the two, and really from the beginning to the end of the world, there is the coming of Christ through the ministry of his word, through the ministry of his gospel, the ministry of his sacrament. He comes to us now as the one who has come to us then, in order to prepare us for his coming to us in the final judgment at, at the end of days, when he finally brings us from this veil of tears to himself in heaven. So that's what the season of Advent is doing. That's what it's about. Those are the key points, and we can spend time on each and every one of those, as you would like, as our time permits. But that kind of lays the pattern, if you will, the outline of the season of Advent for us. Yeah, I like what you've laid out there for us and what you've really developed. I think you said at one point in there is... It's the Christian life. This is how we live in the Christian life, looking to the advent of Christ. And yet I think this season is something, as I said to open today's show, this is a season that is lost among many Christians today, especially here in America. And so I certainly want to develop some more of those themes that you've laid out there for us, sort of the affirmative statement teaching, if you will, of what we believe, teach, and confess about the advent of Christ. But in just a few minutes before break here, before we move on to develop that a little more fully, I think we need to touch on just for a moment 
the sort of negative statement, if you will, of where we do not have concord, where we do not have agreement about the Christian life with lots of other Christians about this. And we're not being mean about this or anything like that. We're not picking on them because they've omitted the season of Advent or trying to virtue signal our observation of Advent or anything like that. But I think we should also just acknowledge that as you talked about there, baptism, the sacrament of the altar, those are key tenets for our Lutheran theology and our view of the Christian life. And if, as you said, those are connected with living the Christian life in Advent, then we just simply do not have agreement with a lot of other Christians, not just in them not observing the season of Advent, but also in Christian living in Advent. Because as the formula of Concord makes very clear on matters such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, there are a lot of Christians in America that fit under what we reject and condemn in the negative statements of those articles of our Christian faith. So I think this may be one thing before moving on to develop a little more fully our positive confessional view of Advent, which I'd like to hear if you have any comments on to lay a bit more of the foundation of what is going on with the broader view of Advent within Christianity and sort of where we don't have concord. Well, I mean, I can speak somewhat generally. Luther does touch upon this in the Confessions, especially in his small called articles, and that's one of the key places I want to bring us uh, as we continue our discussion. It sounds like we'll probably have to get into that a little more after the break, but uh, because it's in the small called articles that really Luther lays it out and says, this is what the Reformation is all about, whether he uses that term Reformation or not, that's what he's talking about. This is really the issue, and it comes down to what does genuine repentance entail and how does it happen? And it's not a do-it-yourself project. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It is something that God does and works in us through the preaching of His Word, His law, and His gospel. And it's not something that we can fabricate for ourselves. That gets to the heart of why Advent is so important, because God is the one who takes the lead. God is the one who prepares us for His coming. Otherwise, we couldn't receive Him, not in faith, not to our benefit, but only in fear and terror of His judgment. I think the key, you know, as to why many of our brothers and sisters in other communions don't recognize this or benefit from this, I mean, aside from the obvious thing that many of these other denominations, for various reasons, have really jettisoned the Church here, sadly, because I think most Christians recognize there's a real value in it. I mean, we have a secular pattern to our life in the world. We like to have calendars. We like to have special days. Why people flee from that in the Church, I don't completely understand. But I think at ground level, there's this When you don't understand the means of grace, when you don't understand that the means of grace are chiefly the word and work of God by which he does stuff to us and for us and in us, not by his word and according to his word. When you don't understand that, when you think of baptism, for example, as something that we're doing to demonstrate our commitment, to demonstrate our allegiance, to demonstrate our devotion, when you think of the Lord's Supper as something that we're doing as an exercise of remembering Jesus in our heads and in our hearts, what you've done is you've removed God from the equation. So I think a lot of our brothers and sisters, you know, they're preserved in the faith by God's grace, but they're missing out on something fundamental, and they're not even realizing that God is still the one working through His Word. If you don't recognize that God is the one working through the means of grace, there's a vacuum, and it will inevitably be filled up by works of man, whether works of intellect, works of emotion, or, you know, works of life in the world, the Christian is really embarking upon a do-it-yourself program. And ironically, the very things that are God's gift, the gifts Christ really gives, appear to be works of man, 
this is a sad irony that I find with many, you know, of my Protestant friends, is they look at the church here and they think, oh, you, you Lutherans are so hung up on your traditions and your ceremonies and your works of man, or they'll look at the sacraments and they go, you're so hung up on these things that you do. Luther dealt with that in the Book of Concord in a small called articles. He talks about the fanatics, the Schwermai, who have basically accused the Lutherans of turning back to works because of their reliance on baptism. They say, oh, it's by faith alone, it's not by works. And Luther says, well, yes, it's by faith alone, but faith has to have something to stand on. It has to have something to hang on to, and it hangs on to the Word of God in the waters of baptism. So, I mean, it's a gross irony, and it's a temptation and deception of Satan when people flee from the Word and works of God, thinking that they're escaping works of man, and what they really end up doing is falling right back upon themselves. And it's very unfortunate. And we as Lutherans, I think, ought to recognize what a treasure we have and really prize that treasure so that we recognize Advent isn't something we're doing for ourselves. Advent is not a few weeks to finish up our Christmas shopping or even to prepare ourselves for Christmas. Advent is the way in which God, in the propria of his church, through the specificity of his word, the specific gospels that are read and preached, God is preparing us for the ongoing coming of Christ in preparation for the final judgment. As he comes to us through his word, calls us and brings us to repentance, forgives our sins, strengthens our faith, feeds us with Christ, so that we are sustained in his word and faith even till we die. That's what Advent is really doing. When we talk about Advent, is this divinely commanded? Do we have to have a season called Advent? Absolutely not. Of course not. But as far as what Advent actually is, it's the opportunity in the church year to be confronted by the preacher of repentance, to be reminded of our baptism or brought to baptism, to be pointed to Christ, to be called away from our idolatry to the one who is the true and living God, so that we might believe and trust in him and receive him and embrace him in faith as he comes to us in word and sacrament, and thereby be at peace in the presence of God to look forward to the day of judgment as a day when our redemption draws near, and in the meantime to bear the fruits of repentance in lives of faith toward God and in fervent love for our neighbor which is simply to exercise within our life that which Christ has given to us and brought to us and now lives in us and through us. The kingdom of God is at in the word and flesh of Jesus. And as he comes to abide in us, his kingdom is also at work in us, in our lives, in faith toward God and in love for our neighbors. So I've probably gotten far afield from your question now, but this is really where I see the benefit of Advent and where I sorrow, you know, that so many Christians are missing out on that. But we need not simply point fingers at others and say, oh, they're not getting it, they're not doing it right, because as soon as we think that way, we're not getting it right either. Advent is not about our preparation for the coming of Christ. It's about the Lord's preparing us for his own coming that we might be able to receive him. As the Catechism says it so well, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel. That's what the season of Advent is all about. That's what the Lord's doing this time of year. He's calling us by the gospel, uniting us with Christ, and keeping us steadfast in him, in his word and faith, throughout our life, even unto the final judgment and the life everlasting. Yeah, and once again, I bring that in mostly because I think it this is a Lutheran distinction for us, is where you start, and it comes back to, as we often say as Lutherans, the chief doctrine of justification, that article upon which the church stands or falls. And I agree with you, is really what the Reformation is all about. The small called articles, as you said, highlights that really well. The first of the 95 theses, what we kind of at least traditionally say the posting of, kind of started the whole Reformation. The first is when our Lord and Master says repent, he wills that the whole life of the believer be one of repentance. And so that focus upon repentance and its 
God's development in our lives of faith is going to be something that we see play out as we begin to kind of walk through all of these doctrines that are highlighted in the season of Advent and explore them a little more fully. We'll take that up in the second half of the show. So we'll take a break here. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Twenty twenty has already been a year of chaos. Now add in the end of the year chaos, duties, deadlines, regrets, plus the pre-Christmas chaos of ads, peer pressure, shopping, family gatherings, empty seats at the table. Who can bring calm to this chaos? Well, the true calm isn't that we'd all just get through it or even get along. The true calm is the peace of Jesus Christ, the peace that comes from his promises, the peace that comes from his forgiving blood, the peace that comes from a confident hope in the resurrection to eternal life for all who trust in him. Don't ride the wave of chaos to get to Christmas and the end of the year. Join the Christian church for Advent and find the calming peace of Christ in your church and home. For Advent, Family, Table Grace, and many other resources, check out lcms.org advent. That's lcms.org advent. And find the peace that this world cannot give. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Rick Stuckwish about why Concord Matters for the Advent of Christ. And Pastor Stuckwish, in the first half of the show, you laid out for us a really excellent roadmap for how we look at the Advent of Christ, and we want to develop that a little more fully with our doctrine of Advent here in the second half. And as you mentioned, especially in talking about how we're distinguished from other church bodies out there which have lost the Advent season, it is good for us to recover and to understand the treasure we have as Lutherans in the church year, and especially in Advent, for how we live out our Christian lives and faith. And so you mentioned that the Advent is centered on repentance. Of course, we often talk about it as one of the two great penitential seasons in the church year, the other being Lent, of course. So as Advent is centered on this doctrine of repentance, and you mentioned that's what the Reformation was all about as you brought in the small called articles, I think that's a good place for us to go to next as we develop our theological understanding of this great treasure we have in the season of Advent. And so I'll just go ahead and read for us from the small called articles and see what Luther says there about repentance. This is part three, article three, the article on repentance from the small called articles. And this is sort of the introductory paragraph to the article. And we are again reading from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, small called articles, article three, picking up with paragraph one. The New Testament keeps and urges this office of the law, as St. Paul does when he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men. Also, the whole world may be accountable to God. No human being will be justified in his sight. And Christ says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. This is God's thunderbolt. By the law, he strikes down both obvious sinners and false saints. He declares no one to be in the right, but drives them all together to terror and despair. This is the hammer, as Jeremiah says, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This is not active contrition or manufactured repentance. It is passive contrition, true sorrow of heart, suffering, and the sensation of death. This is what true repentance means. Here a person needs to hear something like this. You are all of no account, whether you are obvious sinners or saints in your own opinions. You have to become different from what you are now. You have to act differently than you are now acting. 
whether you are as great, wise, powerful, and holy as you can be. Here, no one is godly. But to this office of the law, the New Testament immediately adds the consoling promise of grace through the gospel. This must be believed. As Christ declares, repent and believe in the gospel. That is, become different, act differently, and believe my promise. John the Baptist, preceding Christ, is called a preacher of repentance. But this is for the forgiveness of sins. That is, John was to accuse all and convict them of being sinners. This is so they can know what they are before God and acknowledge that they are lost, so they can be prepared for the Lord to receive grace and to expect and accept from him the forgiveness of sins. This is what Christ himself says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. Whenever the law alone exercises its office without the gospel being added, there is nothing but death and hell, and one must despair as Saul and Judas did. St. Paul says, through sin the law kills. On the other hand, the gospel brings consolation and forgiveness. It does so not just in one way, but through the word and the sacraments and the like, as we will discuss later. As Psalm 130 verse 7 says, against the dreadful captivity of sin, with the Lord is plentiful redemption. However, we now have to contrast the false repentance of the sophist with true repentance in order that both may be understood better. All right, thus far, the small called articles. Pastor Stuckwish, some of that in there may actually sound like other denominations, at least as far as we're used to hearing in American circles and so forth, a heavy preaching of repentance there. But I like how it does bring in beautiful proclamation of the gospel as well to contrast that repentance. Go ahead and give us an understanding of this here. Yeah, this is just, so absolutely fundamental. You know, when people ask me what the Reformation was about, if they want to know what Dr. Luther really was aiming at, this is often where I point them, because as I maybe mentioned earlier, I don't think Luther ever gets more to the heart of things than he does here. He certainly regarded the small called articles as something of a last will and testament, a theological last will and testament on his part. And what he's dealing with here, yes, there is a heavy focus on repentance, and repentance, as our confession say elsewhere, really has these two sides to it, these two parts. First, there is calling us to contrition for our sins, and then also turning us away from our sin to faith and trust in God and His forgiveness. And Luther touches upon both sides here. But what is so crucial here is understanding what he says to begin with. And he's going to go on to emphasize this some more. But when he says what he's talking about here, this true repentance is not something that is manufactured by the self. This is not an artificial or active repentance that we somehow dredge up within ourselves or accomplish in ourselves. This is something that God does to us. This is something that God accomplishes through the preaching of his word. And it doesn't leave anybody unscathed. So he talks about both obvious sinners and false saints. And this really gets to what I was talking about earlier with the season of Advent is, you know, it's easy to look at the world and its excesses and its hedonism and its debauchery and obviously say, oh, well, these people are are all wrong. Or or for us as Lutherans to look at other denominations and say they're not doing Advent or they're not doing this or doing that. And probably many of those criticisms are on target. But what Advent does is it focuses the preaching of the law also on us so that we would not be relying upon ourselves, upon our own piety, upon our own practices, and upon our own intentions, but that we would, first of all, be smashed to pieces by the hammer of the law in order to become something altogether other than we have been in and of ourselves, in order that God would raise us up to newness of life in and with Christ Jesus. So his preaching of repentance does not aim at destroying us or bringing us to despair, but rather he puts us to death in order to make us alive. He wounds us in order to heal us, and he undoes us so that he might recreate us in the image and likeness of his son. So it's not a self 
self-manufactured undertaking. This is not a do-it-yourself project. This is God doing his thing with us and for us, even to us, if you will, in order that he might give us life, in order that he might raise us from the dead. And I mean, all over the Book of Concord, really, this is just part and parcel of the Christian faith and life. There is the ministry of the gospel. There are the means of grace. I mentioned the third article earlier in, in Luther's familiar words, you know, I cannot by my own understanding or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel. There's the Oxford Confession itself with its beautiful words in Article 5, in order to obtain such faith, God instituted the office of preaching and the sacraments, so that through these, as through means, the Holy Spirit works faith where and when it pleases God. And when we talk about working faith, part of that, kind of the initial part of that, is the work of repentance. Both repentance in the narrow sense and repentance in the broad sense, both contrition for our sins and faith in the forgiveness of sins, all of this is God's work. It is what He does and accomplishes in us through the preaching of His Word. That's why the Gospel begins with St. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who goes before the face of the Lord to prepare His way. How? By the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that remains necessary throughout our lives in the flesh, throughout our lives in this world, that God must continue to send His preacher, His voice in the wilderness, to call us and bring us to repentance, to call us and bring us away from our idols, to faith in the true and living God, that we would believe in Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent, and in and through Him believe in the Father, all of this by the work of the Holy Spirit, who doesn't work immediately, but through means, through ministers, through the ministry, through the means of grace. That's why Advent is so crucial, both in itself and in setting the tone for the entire church year, that throughout the year, the reading and preaching of the Holy Scriptures are going to be calling us and bringing us to Christ, even as the Word of God brings Christ to us through the ministry of the gospel. Which, again, I think does help us understand the school of the church once again, and especially as it plays out in the season of Advent. This is why John the Baptist always shows up in the season of Advent. Now, in my dual parish, we follow the historic one-year lectionary, and so on the third Sunday of Advent, this past Sunday, that's when we get John the Baptist historically. The three-year lectionary tends to bring him in on the second Sunday, but you always have John the Baptist in there. And in bringing in the small called articles here in the preaching of repentance, it gets to John the Baptist. And I like what you've set up here for us is that really a right understanding of repentance leads us to understand then the right preaching of repentance. And that's key because once again, that does distinguish how we might read what we saw there in the, the small called articles and think, well, that maybe sounds more like the fiery revivalist preachers or something preaching repentance. But it's very key that we see that it's something that God does in us and that we're not trying to stir up in you to do yourself. God's word will do that. And that is, once again, very much a Lutheran distinction. And so that helps us understand then the fiery preachers of repentance, of course, which John the Baptist was the greatest. And so if it's all right, I'd like to jump a little further ahead into the small called article, article three here, pick up with paragraph 29, and we'll see John the Baptist and his preaching of repentance come in here. Is that all right? Yeah, I think that's very good. That's going to be picking up after Luther's somewhat lengthy critique of the false repentance of the papists, as he describes it. And interestingly, the false repentance of the papists differs not so greatly from the sort of repentance that you're talking about with a lot of the Pentecostal and Protestant preachers. But Lutherans also, again, you know, we don't want to just point fingers at others, but recognize that our own flesh 
is prone to the same idea that when God calls us to repentance, he's calling us to do something for ourselves, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that he's really calling us to be a little more diligent in our piety and so forth. Of course, we should be more diligent by all means, but that is not going to accomplish what is necessary here. The true repentance that God is aiming at is a repentance that completely undoes all of us, and then God completes that work by raising us to newness of life. He kills and makes alive. I mean, the scriptures say that, our confessions say that, and that's what really is going on here through the preaching of repentance. God is killing and making alive. He's wounding in order to heal. And I'll just, not to be defensive, but just to clarify, the three-year series also has John the Baptist on the third Sunday in Advent. So on the second Sunday, you get his preaching. On the third Sunday, depending on which year, you either have John in prison, just as you do in the historic, or you have more of John's preaching. And then in one of the years, you actually get John in the womb on the fourth Sunday in Advent. John is very prominent in both the historic lectionary and the three-year lectionary. This really is St. John's tide, if you will, because John is the forerunner. He goes before the faithful Lord. And even though he himself is departed and with the Lord, his office continues. The work of the forerunner continues in the ministry of preaching, in the ministry of word and sacraments, even to the close of the age. It continues in the apostles, and it continues in the ministry of the gospel, even to the close of the age. So that's what we're going to hear as you continue now with what Luther has to say in the Small Called Articles, is this work that God was doing through John, and the work that he continues to do, not only at the time of the Reformation, but also in our own day. And it's no less necessary now than it was back in the first century or in the 16th century. But as long as the world remains, it's going to be necessary for this ministry, this preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to continue. Absolutely. Well said. And great to bring in what we're skipping over here, as we'll go ahead and pick up here then with, again, this is part three, article three of the Small Called Articles, the article on repentance, and picking up with paragraph 29. These holy ones did not need repentance. What would they repent of, since they had not indulged their wicked thoughts? What would they confess about words that they never said? What should they render satisfaction for, since they were so guiltless that they could even sell their extra righteousness to poor sinners? Of course, here Luther's talking about what's going on at the time of the Reformation. Uh, Continue on, that was my interjection, but continue on here. In the time of Christ, the Pharisees and scribes were these kind of saints. But here comes the fiery angel of St. John, the true preacher of repentance, With one bolt of lightning, he hurls together both those selling and those buying works. He says, repent. Now one group imagines, why? We have repented. The other says, we need no repentance. John says, repent both of you, you false penitents and false saints. Both of you need the forgiveness of sins. Neither of you know what sin really is, much less your duty to repent of it and shun it. For no one of you is good. You are full of unbelief, stupidity, and ignorance of God and God's will. But he is present here, of whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Without him, no one can be righteous before God. Therefore, if you want to repent, repent rightly. Your works of penance will accomplish nothing. As for you hypocrites, who do not need repentance, you serpent's brood, who has assured you that you will escape the wrath to come and other judgments? In the same way, Paul also preaches, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And God now commands all people everywhere to repent. All people, he says. No one is an exception who is a human being. This repentance teaches us to discern sin. We are completely lost. There is nothing good in us from head to foot. And we must become absolutely new and different people. 
Such repentance is not partial and beggarly, like that which does penance for actual sins, nor like that is it uncertain, for it does not debate what it is or is not sin. Rather, it hurls everything together and says, Everything in us is nothing but sin. There is nothing in us that is not sin and guilt. What is the use of always investigating, dividing, or distinguishing? This contrition is certain, for we cannot think of any good thing to pay for sin. There is nothing left. There is only a sure despairing about all that we are, think, speak, do, and so on. All right, thus far, the small called articles. All right, Pastor Stuckwish, go ahead and once again, bring this in connection with what we're doing in the season of Advent. Right. Well, we could hardly summarize it more beautifully than Dr. Luther does here. As painful as these words are, they're kind of poignant. <laughs> and they end on a pretty sobering note that there's just nothing good in us. And God has to come in with his word and utterly undo us. But of course, all of this is aiming at the preaching of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's where the preaching of John really goes. He preaches repentance, but then he points to the one who comes after him, to the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb, who takes upon himself and takes away the sins of the world. So it's a package deal, and none of it is our work. All of it is God's work. All of it is God's gift. And it's all accomplished by and with and through his word and the preaching of it. So Dr. Luther is adamant how necessary this preaching is, and it is a very fiery preaching of the law, as we've both already mentioned. But as fiery as that preaching of the law is, so sweet and comforting and freeing is the preaching of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. And here's the beautiful thing about Advent. It is, on the one hand, really the season of John the Baptist. Of course, all of the seasons are the seasons of Christ Jesus, but in terms of its emphasis and kind of focus, it's the season of John the Baptist. But then also, especially toward the end of Advent, it's also the season of the Blessed Virgin Mary, both in her historic role as the Mother of God, as our confessions explicitly say. She is, and rightly called, the Mother of God because she conceives and bears in her womb. He who is true God from all eternity, begotten of the Father, is conceived and born in her, of her flesh and blood, by the Word and Spirit of God. So in her person, she is extraordinarily significant and important. All generations shall call her blessed. She is favored by God, by his mercy, by his grace. But she also really gives us a beautiful kind of living icon, if you will, of the Church, because we also receive the same Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to tabernacle with us through the same Word and Spirit of God. Dr. Luther liked to say, I just preached this past week, Dr. Luther liked to say that the greatest miracle happening there in the Annunciation is not that a virgin conceives, which is not a hard thing for God to do. It's not even that the Son of God becomes true man, because this is really God's intention from the beginning when he creates man in his own image and likeness. The greatest miracle, Luther says, is that this woman believed the Word of God and submitted to it and clung to it and humbled herself before the Lord, that she had such faith to confess and believe and to pray the Word of God. And the beauty of it is that same miracle, uh, that work of God, is also accomplished in every Christian, that God calls us from unbelief to faith, that he calls us from idolatry and sin to faithfulness, to faith in his forgiveness, so that we also are raised up, as Mary was, to receive the Son of God who comes to us by and with his word and spirit, who comes to us with the same flesh and blood that were conceived in one of Mary. And in fact, he is, in a sense, conceived and born in us by his word and spirit. Not that any of us become the mother of God, obviously, but Christ is now in us, as St. Paul says, and we are in him. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. 
And in the Lord's Supper, the one who became flesh and blood from St. Mary gives us his flesh and blood, sacrificed for us on the cross, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. Yet in the Supper, he gives us that same flesh and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for life and salvation. And he puts his body into our mortal bodies that we might become immortal in him, that we might receive this down payment, if you will, on the resurrection and the life everlasting, and that he might live in us and we live in him, not only intellectually or emotionally or quote-unquote spiritually, but bodily. The Son of God who has become true man comes to dwell in us, that we might become the sons of God in him. So in our baptism, for example, we are conceived and born as children of God. When St. John begins his Holy Gospel and he talks about those who are born not of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God, you can hardly tell whether he's talking about the incarnation of the Son or if he's talking about the conversion of the nations to become Christians. And in a sense, he's talking about both because there's this parallel between what happens with St. Mary and the conception of the Son of God and what happens with us as God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, I mean, this is where the season of Advent is leading us and bringing us, not only in the celebration of the historical events of Christmas, but bringing us to this ongoing ministry and life of Christ, both the preaching and baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as this really gets rolling during the season of Advent, it's going to continue throughout the church year. But it's very pointed, it's very focused, and it's so wonderfully beautiful during the season of Advent. And we have the concrete Holy Gospel readings, and we have the preaching of those readings, but we can also see all of this embodied or made very personal in John the Baptist and St. Mary, who kind of function as the hinges, if you will, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. St. John really sums up the entire Old Testament in his preaching and ministry, and St. Mary kind of sums up the whole New Testament in being the recipient of the gospel, the recipient of Christ Jesus, and the one in whom the Son of God becomes flesh and begins to tabernacle among us. All of that that God accomplished historically, all of that is set before us in the Holy Gospels, is the work that God continues to do in His Church, through His Church, and for His Church, even to the close of the age, so that in the preaching of His Word, in Holy Baptism, in Confession and Absolution, in the Holy Supper, these things are constantly playing themselves out by the grace of God, by His Word and work, for our benefit, for our forgiveness, for our righteousness, for our salvation. You know, as Luther says, this is not a do-it-yourself program. This is not something you can take pride in. This is not something where you can feel safe in yourself. But this is something that God comes in, and he takes all of that away from you, not because he would deprive you of anything, but rather that he would give you everything, and that we would be able to receive it entirely by his grace, so that with St. Mary we can say, Behold, the servants of the Lord, let it be for us according to your word not according to our own merit, not according to our own piety, not according to anything that we have done, but according to all that you have said and done and given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Advent is all about. And I think returns us really well to what my initial question was to you, actually, as well, too, that as pastors in the church and as even as parishioners in the church as we observe the season of Advent, how are we led through Advent? Well, it's the ministry. It's the ministry of word and sacraments. You've returned us once again that it's the school of the church. This goes on all throughout our life and the church year. And you've highlighted that so well for us. Unfortunately, we're just a couple minutes left here. I always appreciate learning from you and talking with you. It's been a real great honor to have you on the show today. But unfortunately, with just a couple minutes left, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of wrap things up for us and give us your parting thoughts about why Concord matters for the advent of Christ. 
Sure. Thank you, Pastor Smith. And this is so typical for me that I run out of time. Th- that's okay. There's always more to say. As Dr. Nagel used to say, there's always more gifts. And so we keep receiving and rejoicing and listening what he gives us and as the time permits. I think that final sort of coming of Christ that I mentioned earlier, and I know it's, it's more pronounced at the end of the church year, but the season of Advent really continues this awareness that our Lord, who came in the flesh at Christmas, who comes to us in the ministry of the gospel, is coming again for the final judgment. And our confessions really teach us that as we anticipate that coming of Christ for judgment, we would not look to ourselves or become turned inward on ourselves or look to our feelings or to our intellect or to our own works, but rather that we would continue to look to the ministry of the gospel, to the means of grace, that wherever we are in doubt or uncertain, wherever we are afraid, wherever we recognize our own weaknesses, we would be constantly called back to Christ in his gospel, the concreteness of his gospel as it is preached, as it is administered, that we would remember our baptism and return to the significance of our baptism, that we would go to our pastors for confession and absolution. That's what the people did. They came to John confessing their sins, and yes, they were baptized in those cases, but they were also there to hear the preaching of forgiveness as he pointed them to Christ, and that we would go to the Lord's Supper and there receive the body and blood conceived and born of Mary, given for us on the cross under Pontius Pilate, raised from the dead and glorified at the right hand of God, and that we would be constantly called back to those things and find in them the certainty of God's heart, which is open to us in Christ Jesus, and the way in which he has opened the heavens to us by his cross and resurrection, the way in which he has pledged himself and bound to us in the waters of holy baptism and the sacrament of holy baptism. And then also that we would heed the preaching of John the Baptist, and as St. Peter says, confirm our calling, and our confessions also point to this, by bearing the fruits of repentance in our lives, that our faith uh, would be living and active in love toward our neighbor, that we would live according to God's word, that we would allow repentance to be not only a sorrow for our sins and a turning away from our sins to the mercies of God, but that we would strive to do better. Not that we're going to save ourselves, but precisely because our salvation is secure and certain in Christ Jesus. And one of the things that I find very compelling, it's often convicting, as it calls me to repentance each time, is the way in which our confessions say that to deny or demean the good works of Christians because the Lutherans are accused of rejecting good works, denying good works. And all over the place, the Lutherans are saying, absolutely not. We actually are teaching good works, and we're teaching the way in which good works are actually possible. And so Melanchthon in the Apology says to demean the good works of Christians would really be to demean the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Because as Christ comes, and as he rescues people from sin, death, and the devil, He does begin the newness of life in them, and while it's never perfect in this body and life, it does exist, it does happen. And so we as Christians, as we're called to repentance, are also called to bear the fruits of repentance in love for our neighbor and faith toward God. So uh, we're constantly called back to find our righteousness and salvation, our forgiveness of sins in the ministry of the gospel and the means of grace, and we're constantly sent to love and serve our neighbor within our callings and stations in life. This is what John the Baptist did, right, when they came to him and said, what should we do? And he preaches Christ to them, and then he teaches them the life of faith and love within their particular offices and stations. So this, too, is part of the season of Advent. As we live in the presence of God in anticipation of the final judgment, we're constantly fleeing to God in Christ Jesus, and then in the confidence of his righteousness, his mercy, his forgiveness, his gospel, we go in love into the works of our calling to care for our neighbor, to love and serve our neighbor, knowing that in Christ Jesus, we are children of God. And while it does not yet appear what we shall be, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. 
All praise and glory be to our God and Father in Christ Jesus and to his Word and Holy Spirit for all that he has done for us and given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is excellently confessed. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Rick Stuckwish. It has been a great pleasure having you join us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord Matters for the advent of Christ, which, as in all things, is rightly centered on Christ who comes for you. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 